This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Students as a teacher and just a lot of people who are just really, you know, overwhelmed by the reality of kind of um, the lack of money and having to always think about money in their lives. So as a sociologist, I'm somebody who's thought a lot about kind of structural aspects like financialization and about... um, um, you know, uh, the racial wealth gap and, and policy. But I haven't always thought about money in terms of public money. And this is actually kind of something that has expanded my vocabulary for thinking about um, fiscal policy and monetary policy. I'm somebody who's always been very critical of kind of fiscal literacy initiatives and the way that we're often told as um, people that we need to just learn how to manage our money better. And so we're always being told we need to learn how to manage money better. But, you know, and so I'm very critical of fiscal literacy, but I've been thinking more about kind of, you know, um, I should say financial literacy, excuse me. But I've been thinking more about kind of political literacy around money in terms of monetary policy and financial policy um, and, and fiscal policy. And this has been something that's been challenging for me in terms of expanding my vocabulary and what it means for my analysis and my politics and, you know, and how I approach kind of thinking about money and also budgets. So I wanted to convene a gathering of people who've been doing this work much longer than me, who have been organizing and also doing policy work, thinking about the issue of public money, taking on institutions like the Federal Reserve, or talking about, you know, stimulus packages, or really breaking down how Wall Street, you know, uh, makes money off of us and off of our people and suffering. And so I'm delighted to be joined by people who I think can help us think more critically about money as a racial justice issue and what it means to actually think about money as public money, what it means to think about budgets as political and moral documents, what it means to think about a deficit of the imagination um, rather than a deficit of the budget, right? And uh, they're going to be sharing different things about some of the policy work they've done, um, some of the policy work, including now during uh, our COVID uh, our need for extreme relief under COVID, um, but also some of the work regarding uh, defund the police, police brutality, um, and also some of the political philosophy behind it. So I am just so, I have to just say, I'm really, really honored. Like I've been thinking about this panel for a while. It's something I've talked to Raul Carrillo about, and um, I'm just really, really blessed that everybody made time in their busy schedule for this. So I just want to introduce people very quickly we have uh, Delman Coates. He is the senior pastor of Mount Enon Baptist Church. And we're going to learn more today about his Arm Money campaign, as well as the Black Church Center for Justice and Equality. Um, we have Alex Goodwin, who works for ACRE, which stands for Action Center on Race and the Economy. She also organizes with UIP 100. And she is a founder and writer. I'm, you know, I'm always a big fan of fellow writers. Um, she's a founder and writer of Left Out Magazine. And then we have Sean Sebastian. Um, and Sean Sebastian, excuse me, 
is a senior strategist for rural people and planet first campaigns at People's Action. Sean is the only one um, on the panel who does a lot of work in terms of rural organizing. And so we're really excited to kind of, you know, uh, bring that perspective about what's going on with people of color in rural areas in terms of public money organizing. Um, and then we have also um, Raul Carrillo. And Raul Perillo is the deputy director of the Law and Political Economy Project, and he's an associate research scholar at Yale Law School, right? Um, and he's also part of the Modern Money Network. Um, and he also, uh, both Sean the writers, Sebastian. Um, she's a founder and writer of Oops. Left Out Magazine. Okay, hold on a second. Sorry. I hit the wrong button. I hit the very button that Sean Larson said, don't hit that button, right? And I did it. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Sorry, Sean Larson. All right. Okay. All right. Sean is like, it is all right. All right. Thank you. I might I, I might hit it again. I have to warn you all. Okay. Um, but, uh, and they, uh, Raul Carrillo and Sean Sebastian are both also affiliated with um uh, Delman's Our Money organization. And again, we'll hear more about that organization in a moment. So we're going to start with a couple of kind of uh, basic terms. And the reason I, I, I think this is helpful is a lot of times, you know, these conversations, um, we might just kind of assume everybody has the same, you know, kind of understanding of the vocabulary. So what does public money mean? And so this is where I want to bring in Raul Crillo. Um, and he's going to just kind of tell us what is public money. And then I'm going to ask him a couple other questions about kind of what is the Federal Reserve and what is the Department of Treasury. And the reason being is throughout the conversation, we're going to be learning about different organizations, campaigns like Delman's um, that have taken on the Federal Reserve. Right. Um, and so it's important for us to kind of understand what are some of these institutions and how they operate. So, Raul, could you please tell us what is public money? Sure thing, Tamara. So when folks in this group are talking about public money, we're referring to money that the government should spend on us. It perhaps isn't spending on us, but money that we think we deserve. So we are making a claim, right? Technically, we're not talking about private money, the money that's in people's bank accounts or the corporations have, that sort of thing. And we're not talking about publicly accessible money like cryptocurrency and that sort of thing. We are talking about the money that the federal government can create and circulate throughout the U.S. economy. And a lot of folks don't call this public money, right? You'll hear people refer to this as taxpayer money, suggesting that however much you pay in taxes gives you a certain amount of rights or a certain amount of entitlements to the money that comes out of the federal government. You'll also hear people call it um, government money to emphasize that it's unfree, and you'll hear people use a variety of different labels to sort of suggest austerity. My personal favorite formulation um, is probably Our Money, which is the title, of course, of Reverend Coates' organization, because it embodies what we want to see, that we want to use it together collectively and fundamentally see money as a collective tool rather than something that is private and that we have to deal with and face alone. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And, you know, Raul, just going back to your point. So, Raul, um, I like how you started out kind of the different levels of what it is, but also the way we've often been kind of conditioned to think about this money in certain ways. So if we think about taxpayer money, right, um, Raul co-authored uh, an essay with Jesse Meyerson in Splinter, um, and it was called The Dangerous Myth of Taxpayer Money. 
And I found this essay both challenging and really useful. And it's something that I started to kind of draw from to actually teach in my classes. Raul, can you tell us why it's important for us to think about this as um, not taxpayer money, right? Because we a lot of times we see when people make political demands or when they're kind of talking about, you know, um, you know, there's all these ways where we talk about kind of the moral politics and budgets and people mm-hmm. say our tax dollars are going to this or we're funding this or, you know, um, we should be able to have this because our taxes are paying for it. But you and Jesse Meyerson, you know, really kind of encouraged us to kind of think critically about what are we actually saying with that demand? And so could you explain uh, briefly why you think public money is better for us to kind of demand instead of taxpayer kind of based arguments? Sure thing. So taxpayer money embodies a certain set of values, right? I don't think it was necessarily always the case, um, especially in the United States, but it is in our neoliberal era. So back in the day, there were actually, um, you know, at the, at the beginning of the 20th century, for example, a lot of upwardly mobile um, folks of color who wanted to claim their rights as taxpayers, right? And say, I contribute taxes to this school. Why can't my kid go? Why do I get double taxed, et cetera, right? So initially it's something that has a claim of justice around it and a ring of justice for people who are mistreated by the system. But around the time of integration in the United States, what we see is a reversion on the right wing to local fiscal control. And primarily what this is about is about controlling financing of public goods at the local level. Most importantly, we see that in the context of education, right, where folks started talking about taxpayer money in order to say that they have more of a right over who goes to school around them than someone who doesn't pay as much in taxes or doesn't allegedly pay as much in taxes. And today that is very much part of the right wing way of thinking about things, right? Margaret Thatcher is very famous for saying that there is no such thing as public money, there is only taxpayer money. And that statement flows directly from her belief that there is no such thing as society, right? If you take out a dollar bill, you will see that it is from the United States government, right? That it is fundamentally a tool of law. And although the state has done a lot of terrible things, especially to people of color in this country, especially through a financial history, it is, it does from the come from the government. Money is not fundamentally a creature of Wall Street or of Silicon Valley, even though they might scoop it all up, right? And so when we're saying public money, we are changing people's perception and saying that, hey, we deserve some of that money. The monetary system is supposed to work for us. And it's not the case that we have to rely on collecting money from rich people in order to have certain things. Mm -hmm. Now, do we want to take things from rich people is a different question, which I'm happy to get into. But ultimately, this idea that we are trapped with scarce resources Mm -hmm. and that we need to go convince, honestly, white middle-class patriarchs in the suburbs that we will be good stewards of their money in order to have basic rights. That is something that is caught up with neoliberalism. And that is sort of the fiscal terrain that we live in now. And we can see that when we talk about spending any sorts of money on black and brown folks and the people of color generally in this country. 
Yeah. And I mean, also, when we think about Raul, this is like, you know, the whole thing about taxpayers also associated with this idea of being a contributor to society through work and employment. Right. And all those different things. And so um, I think that this also raises an issue of like, why should people have to work or be employed to be able to have, you know, basic things like that public money should be covering. Right. Um, now, this is actually before we get into with Raul, thank you. Uh, we're going to loop back Raul to asking you kind of to explain what the Federal Reserve is and what uh, the Department of Treasury is and what they do. But I think this is a great opportunity for us to talk to Delman about your organization, Our Money. And so it's um, the website for Dalman's organization is Our Money Us, U.S., Our Money Us. Uh, yeah. Our Money, our money US org. Yes, Our Money US org. Okay, thank you. And can you tell us, Dalman, a little bit about kind of why you call it Our Money and what was your kind of, um, you have a very interesting scholarly background in terms of um, your religious uh, studies training and your, um, but also you are the pastor of a church. And so what are some of the kind of intellectual trajectory that took you to kind of thinking about things as our money, right? Um, and so forth. So, well, Tamara, first of all, I'm so excited to be a part of this conversation and uh, I really think the title of this discussion is very appropriate, Public Money and Racial Justice. The reason I think it's so fitting is because oftentimes we lack a monetary interpretation of history and we've, and we've not really uh, brought an understanding of uh, how our economy functions at a macroeconomic level to explain many of the social and racial issues we face in society today. So I think linking public money with racial justice is so critically uh, important. When I think about this question, I think about a statement Dr. King made in the aftermath of the riots in the 60s. He said, if a soul is left in darkness, sins will be committed. But the guilty one is not the one who commits the sins, but the one who causes the darkness. And this concept of the causes of the social and economic darkness that we face today is really a part of Dr. King's ongoing quest to understand the archaeology or the origins of injustice, which for him was was intimately connected to how our economy functioned. You know, he dies fighting for the rights of sanitation workers. Mm -hmm. And so I've really been committed as a faith leader who kind of sees himself in that kind of Kingian tradition. Um, wanting to continue the unfinished work of Dr. King, which is the fight for economic justice, a fight that is intimately connected with my faith tradition. And many people don't realize that the three Abrahamic religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, had a historic critique of private money. They had a historic critique of the manipulation uh, of money called in some traditions usury or riba in Arabic, you know, in Islam or in uh, Islamic um, economics. But this whole understanding of usury was really more than just a critique of charging excessive interest. It was about an understanding that money should not be able to reproduce itself. It's based on this sort of Aristotelian notion that paper, right? Well, what we use now is paper should not be able to beget itself or make more money just by its very existence. Mm -hmm. Because when money is created 
uh, by by private entities, it leads to wealth extraction through the paying of perpetual interest payments. And more importantly, those private interests that are creating money uh, through what's called lending are really just creating creating money out of nothing. They're oftentimes not creating pre-existing money. And so that power to create money should be is better harnessed by the public, which provides public support for the ability to have roads, jobs, clean water, clean air, health care, and the range of other things that we need in society. Mm-hmm. So, in, so as a faith leader, as a local church pastor, I really became very concerned about um, our need to have literacy at the macroeconomic level, because every issue we face today, whether it's mass incarceration, the environmental crisis, un- unemployment, underemployment, the wage issues, wealth concentration, in my mind, are intimately connected mm-hmm. with our failure to appropriate the power of the public purse to address our greatest social and economic challenges. Mm-hmm. And so we started an organization entitled Our Money because there are fundamentally two ways money can be created. Economist Jamie Galbraith says that money can be created in one of two ways. It's either going to be created through public spending or it's going to be created through private bank lending. Mm-hmm. And we believe that it's preferable. It's far uh, it's it's preferable. It's far more preferable to have a sustainable economy by relying on money created through public spending, because that money does not have to be repaid with perpetual interest. It does not cause wealth extraction. Um, and so our money is really designed to tap into this notion that money is fundamentally a public utility. It belongs to us and we need to appropriate that power to address the issues that we face today. Thank you. And, you know, one of the things is I wanted to ask you about, um, because as you know, like there's a lot of times in the kind of general conversation, there'll be this whole thing about kind of the prosperity gospel, right? And um, people who've kind of taken sometimes that approach. And your organization, not only with our money, um, but you also have an organization of almost 200, you know, uh, churches. Um, uh, let me see here. The Black Church Center for Justice and Equality. And when you look at the policy initiatives of this organization, it includes a Green New Deal, Medicare for All, right? They're talking about, you know, free access to college, right? There's all these different things. And one of the things that I was struck by was I was like, why isn't this type of kind of network getting more attention, right, um, for this type of organizing that you're doing among your churches and among pastors? Um, and so I was going to ask you if you could share a little bit about why you st- you uh, co-started this organization and what that conversation has been like, because part of what we want to do with this event, and we're going to get other people in here, of course, is to think about kind of how have public money conversations gone in these political spaces that we're in and what has been kind of the reception to them and what momentum has kind of been built. So Delman, when you created this organization, what was kind of the conversation among you and other pastors and how have your congregants kind of taken that? Well, 
Um, we started, I started the Black Church Center six, seven years ago because I was deeply disturbed about the way in which when people thought about the Black church in popular culture, they really thought about three popular televangelists whose theology and mission and ministry were completely antithetical to the Black church tradition of freedom fighting. I often say that there's a difference between the Black church and a church of Blacks. And what I mean by that is, historically, the Black church was a reference to that subset of African-American sacred spirituality or sacred Christianity that was on the side of the fight for freedom, justice, and equality. When historians talk about the Black church or those leaders in the Black church tradition, they were talking about those in the freedom-fighting tradition. Every church of Blacks was not committed to that freedom-fighting tradition. So I started the Black Church Center for Justice and Equality to really reclaim this social justice tradition of African-American Christianity and to elevate the profile of faith leaders all across the country. Faith leaders like Reverend Raphael Warnock, who's been, you know, a part of, you know, our work. Otis Moss III in Chicago, so many um, uh, Leslie Callahan in Pennsylvania, so many faith leaders around the country who have been on the side of the fight for LGBTQ rights, um, mass incarceration. And right now we're organizing around a set of six principles. First, expanding our understanding of the public purse. Secondly, we are fighting for a federal job guarantee. The federal job guarantee is the unfinished work of the civil rights movement, where in which we need to have a legal guarantee to a dignified job with benefits for every American that wants one. We're fighting for Medicare for all, federal funding of public education, pre-K through college, including for HBCUs, and a percentage of federal contracting that goes to um, blacks, to goes to blacks as a part of our reparative justice effort. So, so um, yeah, I mean, most of the leading progressive faith leaders, we need to do more work to elevate their voices and their profile. There are many all across the country. And so that's in large part why we started the BCC or the Black Church Center for Justice and Equality. Thank you, Delman. And, you know, the Black Center um, Church. Sorry, can you say the name again? I'm looking at my notes here and I want to make sure the I Black Church for Justice and Equality. Our website is theblackchurch.org. OK, yes. Thank you. Black Church Center for Justice and Equality. And so I would encourage people to check them out and to look at their platform. Um, so I want to kind of move to Alex. Um, hi, Alex. How are you? There we go. I'm good. How are y'all? Oh, good. OK. So, Alex, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I read your uh, co-authored report, um, police brutality bonds that you published, uh, you researched and wrote with Acre. And I know in the wake of a lot of the rebellions and protests and the, you know, kind of um, mobilized energy for defund the police, your report on police brutality bonds has gotten more attention and has also been updated. Your organization updated it. Um, and so I want to ask you a little bit about this because we're going to think about some of these kind of um, ways that we're also thinking about budgets as political moral documents. Um, and this is something where the conversation about defund the police and about where is our investment, right? Um, 
Delman said that part of his work is in the tradition of Dr. King. And also, I know that Delman, you've amplified the work of Credit Scott King. And we're going to talk about Credit Scott King and loop back to you as well as talk to Sean Sebastian about some of the work um, challenging the Federal Reserve that you both have been involved in. Um, and, uh, but one of the things is, you know, today we're hearing a lot about divest invest around police brutality and police, uh, departments. So the idea of kind of divesting from police in terms of our budget priorities and investing in other, um, you know, kind of, um, ideas of safety and other forms of safety. And, you know, the reason why I link this to kind of the point of Dr. King and Credit Scott King is they were very much kind of doing divest and best work, right? So when they were raising questions about the military budget and about our spending and about our priorities and Credit Scott King was doing a lot of work of what she was considering kind of a peacetime economy, right? Um, and so there were, you know, examples of divest invest. And so Alex, your research, I just have to say, first of all, your report was really powerful. And my students got a lot um, from reading it and we studied it quite closely a couple of years ago in a class. Can you talk to us a little bit about what are you talking about when you say a police brutality bond? What is that? Yeah. Um, can y'all hear me? Okay. I can. Can everybody okay. else? Yes. Okay. okay great. Um, so I think like most simply and like straightforward put, like a police brutality bond is when a city borrows money to pay off a police brutality settlement. Um, and uh, with that borrowing, there are banks involved in underwriting and like pushing the process through that make a profit. And then there are, there are investors who are invested in the bond who will make a profit for the term of the bond, which could be anywhere from 10 to 20 or 30 years, essentially. Um, and I think like just really quickly to underscore, you know, we think at Acre and myself personally, it's important that families receive settlements. Um, that's not the issue with the bonds. The issue with the bonds is that, is that this is an example of Wall Street and capitalists being able to profit off of police brutality um, and racism. That okay. is, I think that's like the most simple way to put it. So Alex, how about if we take a step back? Thank you. So part of what police brutality bond work is that you were investigating kind of how do cities pay for police brutality, correct? Yes. Okay. And so one of the things as we know is, you know, you have these cases of brutality or of deaths at the hands of the police. And um, families will sometimes bring lawsuits or survivors of uh, abuse will bring lawsuits. Um, and so, Alex, before we get a little bit more into kind of some of the digging that you did, right, into, you know, finding out these police budgets and like where they kind of hide some of the money and stuff, because that's also part of the story, right, is actually how much do they have to work with and how are they kind of not letting us know, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how do how do police brutality lawsuits usually get paid for? Is it the police paying for it? Who's usually paying for it? No. Um, so I will use the example of Chicago. Um, that's where I am and where I did, I think, most of the, a, a lot of my time spent on this research. Um, it is a line item in the general budget um, for settlements, for policing. It was not in the police department budget um, up until maybe a year or two ago. Um, and I think the 
rub there or I mean, it's, it's Chicago. So <laughs> apply whatever words you think work here, but, um, you know, Chicago was only allocating like just under $20 million for police brutality settlements, um, knowing good and well that they were blowing through this $20 million every year. Um, there are, you know, levels to the problems. I think the problems here are one, they're like blowing through this $20 million Two, $20 million is a lot. So they already expect at least $20 million worth of police brutality settlements in a given year. Um, so, you know, I think up until a year or two ago, uh, that number, it was like at tw- just under 20 million. It was a regular, like general fund line item. They have since increase that budget to around 80 million. And it uh, is also part of the police department budget. Okay. So when police departments, they, they commit this violence, right? And I think this is a really important point in a position that Acre does take. And I've listened to a couple of Acre's training webinars. And I just have to say very quickly, um, I, I, I took your webinar, the one that you were part of around training people how to look at um, police uh, budgets. And I have to say, as an educator, I was just very impressed with the design and the pedagogy of it. It was very much committed to kind of people's literacy around how to find these this data and these budgets. It wasn't just on the level of kind of theory and critique. It was saying, how can you try to trace your police budgets, right? So one of the things that it sounds like you're getting at, Alex, is that on one hand, cities are already kind of planning in their budget for brutality, right? Yeah. Which means that there's a certain kind of recognition that cities have of police brutalizing people, right? And so this is one of the kind of calls to defund the police is just to kind of decrease, right, the brutalization and so forth. Um, but also what you have is um, you have this way where they're increasing the budget for covering police brutality, but it's still not going to be enough because of the amount of brutality that is happening. Right. Um, And so there's also this way where then they're going into borrowing into these police brutality bonds. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the things is how does that affect the kind of health of the people in the cities themselves, right? What does that do when cities are borrowing money um, to cover these police brutality cases? Ooh, yeah, um, I'm like, where do I start? Because I think it actually creates like a really ugly cycle um, and it's hard to map out like what is the beginning, what is the end here? Um, just starting with the, with the borrowing, knowing that... Um, I think in Chicago, I just want to get my numbers right. So between 2010 and 2017, Chicago Chicago borrowed $709 million, which um, like in in a number of different bonds. And over time, that will cost taxpayers a billion dollars in interest. That Mm -hmm. is a billion dollars that communities will not see, that the public schools will not see, that public housing will not see. Um, and it is an example. We think, I think we tend to think about divestment as like, oh, the city is not putting money here. This is another piece of divestment that I think is really important to think about. Again, the mo- they're 
this is padding the pockets of Wall Street and, you know, other wealthy elite who are invested or are a part of this process. This is money going to them as opposed to going directly into our communities. Um, and we have been socialized to understand police as like the answer to inequality, the answer to poverty. And so these communities continue to get divested from wealth extraction, resource extraction, and uh, cities then just send more police in, which mm-hmm. I think continues that cycle um, over and over. And then with you know more police exposures, more risk for violence, more risk for settlements, um, and it just continues. And I think you know, Alex, one of the things that you thank you that you said in your report is I remember you guys were talking about, and this kind of loops back to Raul's point about kind of the taxpayer, right? And why we need to kind of think critically about um, the taxpayer as kind of the figure who's been injured, right? Because what happens when this money is, you know, being covered by cities, right? And it means that everybody, regardless of kind of like what your taxpayer status is or what you're, you're suffering, right? And so a lot of times people at the bottom um, who are going to be suffering the most from the cuts in city services and the cuts in kind of different, you know, programs and so forth. And one of the things I appreciate about the report that Acre put out um, was I remember there was this part where you emphasized, you and the co-authors emphasized how um, sometimes cities would have different ways to try to raise money to cover these um, police brutality cases, the lawsuits, since, again, the police are not paying for it themselves, right? This is a major issue. Um, but it would mean sometimes that they would have kind of, they would, you know, um, increase taxes on people or they would have kind of certain things where they would, you know, um, have residents paying for it in some way, and that that would sometimes increase the resentment that residents felt, right? And so there's this way where residents can also be encouraged to have this hostility towards the person who was brutalized by the police, but not have the hostility towards the police themselves for brutalizing people, right? Or for the way that, you know, cities are trying to kind of raise this money to cover these police brutality costs. And I thought that was a really important part that you guys put in your report was to talk about kind of, you know, the way that money is raised, right, to deal with some of this stuff. And I also think it is really important, as you said, that, you know, people who've been brutalized by the police deserve Um, they deserve uh, reparation, right? And so I think it's great that you guys have amplified that in your critique, Um, but also saying people are, you know, Wall Street is making money off of brutality, right? And that this raises even the stakes more about why we need to kind of call for defunding the police and just a whole different kind of way of thinking about our budget and political priorities, right? So thank you, Alex, for that. And we'll loop back to some of the things that you said in a moment. So I want to bring in um, Raul very quickly just to kind of explain what is the Federal Reserve, right? And then we're going to uh, get to Sean, Sebastian in a moment. But Raul, could you tell us what is the Federal Reserve? And this is going to be something that will loop back in Sean and also Delman in terms of his work um, around the Federal Reserve. Sure thing. Um, Tamara, I'm happy to start there. I'm also happy to start with the Treasury so we can compare them a little bit. Um, but okay. discretion. <laughs> uh, no, only the federal. No, totally kidding. Yes, please go ahead. Okay, okay. Right. cool. Um, so there are two major, um, you know, 
institutional actors in, um, in, in terms of public agencies in the United States, the Treasury and the Fed. Uh, we'll start with the, with the Treasury. So those of you who have seen Hamilton or at least um, read a little bit about the American Revolution, well, are you recall, talking about the play? <laughs> I was talking about the play, and we can put okay. that on uh, okay. sidebar. I, I just want to make sure I heard that. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so money management was a little bit difficult during the American Revolutionary War, and you have a lot of people who are trying to conduct economic activity but can't use the British Empire's money in quite the same way anymore. And um, the Constitution gives uh, the federal government the ability to coin, mint, print money, and regulate the value thereof, right? Unlike the cities that Alex was just talking about, or unlike states, there is technically speaking no legal bottom to how much money Congress can create, right? In some instances, it might be a bad idea to create a lot of money, or it might be bad, more likely to target money to bad functions like law enforcement in some instances, right? But the Treasury sits at the heart of the public money system, and it has been given a lot of duties by Congress over the years. First of all, the IRS is there. It raised taxes, right? But it also serves a role of circulating money and spending into the economy. Mm -hmm. um, this became particularly important after the Civil War and during Reconstruction and its aftermath when the Union had created a lot of debt and the Treasury needed to borrow even more money um, from foreign investors at the time and decided ultimately just to issue currency, right? It, Lincoln created something called the greenback. That's not exactly the paper money that we use today, but it Paper money in the United States arises out of a very important time in, in the history of white supremacy in this country, right? And that's some, a theme that recurs um, throughout Treasury's interaction with the general economy. Now, in 1913, um, we face a banking crisis, right? And the Treasury is actually not doing much to regulate banks at this time. And, um, excuse me, in 1907, we face a crisis and J.P. Morgan essentially bails out the United States, right? And so a lot of the power elite, um, people in Congress and bankers meet together and they form a central bank, the Federal Reserve System. And this is intended to serve as a bank, right, as distinguished from a treasury. So it lends, it invests it um, does a variety of functions that the Treasury doesn't do, right? It's not into giving money directly, but it will issue a loan to a business or to a corporation um, or to a municipality, fingers crossed, in the next few months, right? So the Fed sits at the center of the banking system in terms of as an instrument, right? It supports the other banks. It is the lender of last resort, the buyer of last resort, the securities dealer of last resort, um, some people think it should be the employer of last resort, but it's right there in the middle of our banking system. And it also nominally regulates the private banks. Mm -hmm. um, the private banks have representation within the Federal Reserve System. This leads some people to suggest that the Federal Reserve is private, but it is created by a statute and is fundamentally an instrumentality of the government. There are questions about the Fed's independence. Um, I would say, looking at the perspective of communities of color, especially in the United States, the Fed has never been independent, right? 
It often serves Wall Street interests. Sometimes it serves the president's interests. Um, that was very much the case in the Nixon administration. But independent from what is a good question. Independent for who is a good mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. But so there's this idea that the central bank sits kind of above us all, right? And it manages the macro economy. And so it regulates banks, it modulates bank lending, and it's supposed to create the conditions for full employment. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to create an economy that is hot enough that everybody who wants to get a job can get one, right? At least some of us want it to do that. What it does in reality usually, and Sean's about to get into this, I think, is talk about inflation mm -hmm. and trying to tell the Treasury and Congress to stop putting so much like money into the economy, right? You, you all need to chill out. And it fundamentally defines inflation as um, a wage price spiral. So being afraid that people on the periphery of the labor market, black, brown folks, trans folks, people who are formerly incarcerated, disabled folks, are going to get higher wages and they're going to want more food and the prices are going to go up, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't the only source of inflation in the economy, but since the advent of neoliberalism, this is how the Fed sort of attempts to control the economy as a whole. And fundamentally, as Sandy Darity, um, a stratification economist, Duke has said, this means sacrificing black and brown folks to a vo uh, inflation volcano that never erupts. Mm. But as Coretta Scott King said, we are the, the pawns in the economic chess game. Mm. And the Fed and the Treasury coordinate every day in ways that very much shape our economy. And yet we talk about money as if it's a private thing, right? Mm. As if it's something we have absolutely no control over. But there are ways in which we can influence how this is shaped and how we interact with it. And I think Sean's work provides a great example of that. Thank you so much. Um, so we'll go to Alex. No, totally kidding. No, we're going to go to Sean, right? Sean is like, I'm, I'm ready. Okay, right. So Sean, um, you were the director um, for a while of, uh, for years for Fed Up, right? Can you just tell us very briefly what that organization was? And you had shared with me that you had done some really interesting work working with organizations like Fight for 15 and kind of the battle around minimum wage, right, to support that. And so what does the Federal Reserve got to do with like the Fight for 15? And what was that like kind of working with labor unions to kind of, you know, think about the Federal Reserve as part of their work? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on this panel. And I'm really like honored to be with all these brilliant people uh, right now. And um, I should say the Fed Up campaign is continuing and it and is continuing to go on. And I can say a little bit about the context of um, where we were when I was um, with the Fed Up campaign. And I think the ultimate thing that the Fed Up campaign is for is for true full employment, right? We want everyone who wants a job, but, you know, like we believe everyone who wants a job should get a job, uh, should be able to get a job. And that is, and the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate, like Raul said. They are supposed to run the economy in such a way that, um, that it creates the conditions for full employment. The thing that the Fed Up campaign um, did was try to debate the terms of what full employment actually means, mm -hmm. because ultimately um, the federal the people at the Federal Reserve um, don't know 
what it means. They don't know. And like we were in the thick of it when uh, they were flying blind and trying to act with a lot of authority. Right. So in the uh, in the immediate aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, unemployment shot up to 10 percent overall and 20 percent among black people. And as things started improving extremely slowly because the Treasury and Congress did not give us the stimulus we needed, I think that's an important part of the lessons that we learned from the last crisis is that, you know, we were trying to fill a $14 trillion hole with less than a trip, you know, with less than a trillion dollars with the assumption that Republicans would act in good faith and continue to stimulate the economy through fiscal stimulus. And it didn't happen. Right. So can I just the, very quickly, yeah. Sean, after, can you explain for people what does a stimulus package mean, please? Yeah, I mean, I I don't have uh, a great definition. I think like Raul and Delman might be able to answer this better, but it's just government spending, right? Like it's we're in the middle of this right now where Congress is debating a mass a stimulus package that we actually need. And again, we are constraining ourselves artificially. Um, and, you know, a lot of like Republicans are just homicidally incompetent. And a lot of Democrats are going along with those artificial constraints. And so we're not getting what we need right now. Mm -hmm. And we've been through this before. We know how this works, right? So in 2008, we didn't get, we got a fraction of what we needed. And so the recovery was slow and painful, but in the middle of that slow and painful recovery, there were people at the Federal Reserve that said when unemployment was at 7%, that this is as low as unemployment can go. Actually, we need 7% of people to be unemployed. And that was 15% of Black people, by the way. They said 15% of Black people unemployed is the economy working exactly how it should be working. Mm -hmm. And that is a conversation that is happening among 12 regional bankers and eight people at the board of governors, right? And they are mostly all white. At the time, I believe they were all white except for one person. And they uh, oftentimes come directly from the financial industry. And they're the ones deciding that at the time, 15% Black unemployment is totally reasonable. And the debate and the conversation typically happens in the back pages of the Wall Street Journal. It doesn't happen with the people who are most affected. The people who, you know, what we saw was unemployment got down to 3%, right? And without triggering inflation, which is the thing that they're so deathly afraid of, it got down to 3%. The difference between 7% and 3% is millions and millions of people, mostly black and brown people, who would not be able to put food on the table for their families. But what the Federal Reserve does all the time is say, like, well, what is the optimal rate of unemployment? Like, what is full employment in this economy? Mm -hmm. And they are weighing on one side the value of millionaire cap holders of capital versus working people. And they would rather sacrifice million the livelihood of millions and millions of working black and brown people rather than 
even have a chance that that those huge stores of capital might in the future degrade even just a little bit. So that's how they balance these risks. Like these risks are asymmetric. I think most reasonable people would say like, it's okay if a billionaire, like if that, if his pile of money loses a few, like goes down a little bit. If if Jeff Bezos's pile of money is worth a little bit less, that's okay. If it means more people can put food on the table, but that's fundamentally not where the Federal Reserve has put its balance of concern. Mm -hmm. And that's where FedUp came in, right? FedUp wanted to change the balance of their concern and confront them with the people Mm -hmm. that they're that their uh, decisions affected the most, mm-hmm. right? So um, in general, this conversation happened among bankers um, and among economists, and there would be a pile of white papers from places like our friends, like the Econ- uh, Economic Policy Institute, Center for Economic Policy Priorities, et cetera. But then there'd always be another pile from our enemies, like the Cato Institute and mm-hmm. other things. And it's a wash and they would do whatever they wanted to, right? Like what we did was we organized working class people who were on the margins, whose livelihoods hung in the balance based on what these people who were so removed from the day-to-day realities, um, you know, like what the decisions they would make, we showed them who they were affecting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we were saying, like, you know, Raul and Delman were talking about, Credit Scott King talking about, the pawns in this game, right? Like we are the pawns in this game. We are the ones at the margins. And we showed them what sac- like that we're the ones you're sacrificing and you're sacrificing us based on a guess, based mm-hmm. on a guess of something that might happen that doesn't happen. And mm-hmm. I think everyone everyone who's a decision maker during that period should be deeply ashamed that they were pushing for unemployment to stay at that level because we now know how low unemployment could have gone, how low unemployment went. And everyone who was in that group of millions of people between 7% and 3% unemployment would have been cast out in the street if the Federal Reserve had their way. So I think it's really important as we are evaluating our very recent history of who was right and who was wrong, I think the people who were deeply, deeply wrong should be discounted, right? And I think this goes for, in the in this moment right now, the people who were the most wrong that we need to cast out of public life and ignore are the deficit risks, right? Like, I think that's kind of where we're going with this conversation. Like, we are in the middle of an economic crisis. Food lines are going miles around. We have an eviction crisis that is ready to pop and put people on the street, starving to death in the middle of winter, right? And we are trying to negotiate for basic spending to keep people alive. And then you have... And, you know, obviously we have one one of our two parties that is against democracy, that is against life, that is against like basic fundamental human dignity. And then we have 
a Democratic Party that includes people like Mark Warner, who say that let's like we are going to have to keep this package at a trillion dollars. So you can either have direct stimulus or unemployment. And it's totally and completely arbitrary. And that arbitrary disinformation and fundamental illiteracy about how our system works is going to kill people. Thank you, Sean. And this is something where I want to bring back Raul and Delman, but then I'm going to connect back to you, Sean, and um, Alex about something that I think is a shared connection in some of your work. Um, Raul, could you tell us a little bit, you had talked about how, you know, when we think about, um, when we think about kind of uh, budgets, right? So cities and municipalities, they don't operate with the same type of budgeting um, power that let's say the federal government has, right? Can you talk a little bit more about what do you mean by that? And this goes to kind of Sean's point about when he, you when Sean uh, said that this is very arbitrary when they're saying, oh, we don't want to spend more than this, right? Um, what could the federal government actually spend, uh, Raul? Sure. So the answer to that question is actually fairly simple. Um, the, co- the Congress, Congress doesn't go looking for money. It goes looking for votes, right? Congress can create as much money as it appropriates. And there is no pot of money that it has to draw from because it creates the currency, right? It mm-hmm. creates the US dollar. And we go back to Lincoln's point, for instance, during the Civil War, right? And today the Fed and the Treasury interact together to create money, right? And in theory, Congress could say, you know, as much money as is necessary to bring people back to pre-COVID income levels, that's how much we're, you know, we're sending out. Um, I was privileged to, uh, along with other folks, advise on a bill called the ABC Act um, that is sponsored by Representative Rashida Tlaib that would send, for instance, um, uh, uh, 3K and then 2K a month to every person in America. Um, Can I just ask you very quickly, was this the mint the coin? So that that is the financing provision of the bill. Okay. Um, and there are a number of ways to fund it in terms of accounting, et cetera. Um, Mint the coin is a way to break a certain kind of congressional gridlock in a gridlock between the Treasury and the Fed. But the overall, the point is that Congress could literally send money to people with no strings attached through the Treasury if it wanted to do so. It could even do that in a private way and send debit cards um, and not just deposit into people's bank accounts. So the government doesn't even have to necessarily see where the money goes. Right. But it doesn't do that. And as Sean was saying, Republicans um, you know, are happy to spend, write blank checks for war, for incarceration, for deportation, for extraction, and then pretend that the pockets are empty when it comes time for us to have some money, right? Yeah, I mean, then, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So that leaves, the, that leaves the Fed, right? And if, if Democrats and Republicans are going to come together to get this money out there, that means the central bank, because of this concept of independence, maintains some authority to lend to businesses or even directly to municipalities or to universities mm-hmm. or to local entities. And this is extremely important for racial justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, my folks are in El Paso, Texas, right? And where COVID has been especially, especially rough. And folks are 
praying around 18 wheelers, playing the rosary, just like guessing that their families, uh, the, you know, the bodies of their loved ones are in these trucks. It's truly dystopian. And it is a brown community on an international border with Mexico, right? So you have contagion coming from both sides, but El Paso is trapped in a red state and the governor will not let the city shut down, nor will the state give it any money and Texas has particularly stringent um, restrictions on how it shares money anyway. Mm-hmm. And now what should happen in this scenario is that the Fed should stand as a lifeline for El Paso, Texas, mm-hmm. right? But it is unclear if that is going to happen and whether that is going to happen equitably. So mm-hmm. just to recap, Congress and the Treasury could keep spending as much to keep effective demand up to, keep, to get our economy rolling again, Without that, the Fed could be doing a lot of lending to help and support people. It's not as direct, but it could be done, and it's not doing that either. And so this leaves our communities fundamentally in the lurch, where municipalities can't help. People are doing all kinds of projects and what they can on the side, but at the end of the day, if you're not getting the dollars, it's extremely difficult to survive Mm -hmm. in this sort of situation. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Raul. And, you know, when you were saying that um, the part about especially with the impact of COVID and just kind of the image of people praying. Um, You know, I was reading something about how uh, some local budgets might be getting slashed so that they can try to get the vaccine, right? And to fund, you know, uh, for their cities. And so this is also something when we think about just like, why isn't there a federal kind of rollout of this vaccine and Congress covering it, right? Um, If we think about immigration enforcement, for example, you know, the, the 22 agencies of the Department of Homeland Security, like the two major enforcement agencies, their budget has ballooned over the years. But the one part of the uh, Department of Homeland Security um, that's about kind of citizenship papers and applying for asylum and all this stuff, that's a lot of times financed by the fees associated with people who are applying for citizenship, right? And so there's this way where, you know, we're always getting this kind of message that, Um, you know, surveillance, policing, and punishment are these priorities um, and not these kind of things that affirm, you know, people's, you know, ability to live. And I think this is something that, um, you know, I was listening to a podcast that Jason Perez was on, and some of you know him as Iola Ella on Twitter, and he was talking about uh, Lori Lightfoot's policies in Chicago. uh, And and he said, you know, her policies are killing us. Like, we have to make it plain. Like, these policies and these decisions are killing us, right? Um, And so this is something that I think, you know, that level of kind of urgency. Um, I want to loop back to Delman and then we're going to go, we're going to close with Sean and Alex, but You know, Delman, last year, as you know, in 2019, you um, and your congregation, uh, your organization, Our Money, were um, you led a march on the Federal Reserve on Labor Day in 2019. Um, And I know that Raul attended and spoke at it, as did Andres Bernal, who's somebody who thinks a lot about public money in the global south. Um, If you're watching, hi, Andres. Um, But... um, Dalman, could you tell us why did you march on the Federal Reserve specifically? Why was that your kind of target? Well, and I declare very quickly before Dalman starts, you know, he gave a speech at it, and you can actually find it on our money. Um, and there was this very powerful line from his speech that he says, We have been told our entire lives 
that there is no money to attend to our deeply held and brutally neglected public priorities, right? That we've been told there's no money, right? When we know, and as we're trying to elevate here, there is actually money, right? right. Um, Delman, please. Yeah. Well, I'll sort of start with this anecdote that, um, based on this comment I made in the sermon, in the uh, speech there for the march, you know, there were times, uh, Tamara, growing up when um, when I wanted something and I would go to my parents and ask them, could I get it? Let's say it was the latest game station at the time. And my parents would often say, we don't have the money for it. As I became older and became a parent myself, I realized the issue wasn't that they didn't have the money for it. They just didn't have the money for that. And what we are learning is that we're often told that the federal government doesn't have the money when the fact is because of the public, because of the will of our representatives in Congress, what they're telling us is they don't have the money for that. When Donald Trump wants to give two trillion dollars in tax cuts to the rich, they have money for that. Um, when we want to drop, when we want to increase our military budget to drop bombs around the world on people of color. We have the money for that. And we don't mind deficit spending for that. And so we did this march on Labor Day of 2019, not so much on the Fed, but it was symbolically to challenge the way in which we are unnecessarily relying on the central bank to get us to the fundamental policy goal of the civil rights movement, which was full employment. I think Sean Sebastian, he's done incredible work when he was with FedUp and he's, you know, talked a lot about the way in which we are unnecessarily relying on theoretical concepts, namely the Phillips curve, which is a theoretical concept that our policymakers at the Fed use to rely on this notion that when unemployment gets so low, um, we have to raise interest rates because it's necessarily going to cause inflation. Well, we have seen that unemployment continues to go down and we've yet to reach our inflationary target. And as Chairman Powell said when questioned by Congresswoman AOC last year, we can go much lower, um, but the solution is going to have to be an act of Congress. We, Congress has punted to the central bank. Congress has abdicated its power its responsibility to make sure that we have, that we uh, eliminate involuntary unemployment in America. And rather than relying on the central bank to get us to um, its notion of the natural level of unemployment or an acceptable level of unemployment, we are saying that people of color can no longer rely on the central bank to get us to full employment. And the only way to do that is to have a legal guarantee to a dignified job with benefits for every American that wants one. That's what King had in mind when he talked about a universal basic income, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the federal job guarantee is an idea that the nation's first black economist was pushing in the 40s, a lady named Sadie Alexander. She's the nation's first black economist um, uh, received her PhD in economics, was not unfortunately allowed to practice in the profession because of what was going on at the time. But she talked about full employment was the way in which we have to deal with economic insecurity and help to address some of the racial tensions in America so that 
so that whites at various levels don't feel that blacks and other people of color um, are threats to their jobs, mm -hmm. that we've got to have a legal guarantee uh, to a dignified job. We can do that through a, a Green New Deal, part of which is getting us to a, uh, to a Green New Deal. Uh, there are $4.6 trillion of infrastructure improvements that the American Society of Civil Engineers saying that we are that we need right now. Mm -hmm. And so we did that march to say that we cannot wait. We cannot wait because right now, one third of black people are on the verge of being evicted in a matter of two weeks, I believe, according to the latest article that came out. Mm -hmm. And so we did this march uh, last week from the King Memorial to to the Federal Reserve symbolically. Mm -hmm. To say that we are un we are unnecessarily relying on this institution mm -hmm. to give us economic sustainability, mm -hmm. and what we the reason we need a federal job guarantee is that we're in the position that we're in right now because we have been relying on stimulus when what we need are stabilizers. Mm -hmm. Stimulus is important to provide relief, help us to bring get get us to recovery. But we are of the view that rather than relying on temporary stimulus, and what, what I mean by that is, you know, we had we had Congress approved an unprecedented stimulus back in March and April, three trillion dollars. But we're in this situation right now because a economic stimulus is a lot like coffee or alcohol. You get an initial buzz, but eventually it wears off. And we believe that if we want to protect black and brown people, if we want to have racial justice, we've got to shift from relying on temporary stimulus and moving towards automatic stabilizers, like a federal job guarantee. It is, it is preferable because automatic stabilizers put us in a situation where we don't have to rely on the Mitch McConnells of the world, where we don't feel as if we're being held hostage to which party is in power in Congress. The ability of Americans to, to keep a roof over their head and food on their tables and provide for themselves should not depend upon, you know, who's leading the Senate or, you know, which party is in power. So this is why we have been fighting for policies like a federal job guarantee. It is truly transformative. There's no better time to have a federal job guarantee than right now when 10 to 20 plus million Americans are either unemployed or underemployed. And so that's why we did this March um, last year. Thank you, Delman. Now, I want to loop back to Sean. Um, Sean, you're in you do a lot of organizing in rural areas in the Midwest. And that's something where a lot of times when people are talking about kind of, you know, who gets to represent the rural economy, um, people of color, you know, there's this kind of weird way where people of color get inserted in that conversation. And you had shared with me, and this is something that I knew you wanted to talk about, and this is something I want to loop also Alex and even though you're in Chicago um, and you're not in a rural area, but, you know, Sean, you had said something about how um, people are trying to use the fear of like Antifa, right? And the kind of defund the police kind of mobilizations and the protests to kind of scare people into kind of um, what they might demand from the government, right? And um, if you could talk a little bit about how kind of the protests have shaped the conversation around stimulus packages and around kind of government intervention. And Alex, you know, I'm thinking about what's going on in Chicago where 
Um, you know, Chicago has a very active political activism scene, organizing scene, especially around the police. And you have this whole campaign in Chicago of defund the Chicago Police Department. And you've had, you know, um, you know, city council folks take that up and, and so forth. Um, and then you have, you know, Mayor Lori Lightfoot kind of, you know, basically increasing the budget of the police and then also, you know, trying to cut other things and also threatening, you know, city council people who don't vote in support of that budget, right? Um, and so this is something where how have the defund the police stuff and these kind of anxieties around protest or the use of kind of the fear of Antifa or whatever, how has that played a role in kind of the budget demands and conversations that have gone on in your different spaces? And so if we could start with Sean, because you were the one who had brought this up and I thought, oh, that's very, I didn't know that was happening yeah, I mean, before I dive in, I just want to say I 100% agree with what Delman just said. And I just think like, if we could like rewind and imagine that we had a job guarantee going into this COVID crisis, how different things would be right now, right? And like what Delman said about not being held hostage by the insanity of Mitch McConnell and instead having a job guarantee where everyone knew they could get a job from the federal government doing meaningful work to address the very real challenges that we have to face would change everything. And it would also change everything. And this was a demand that, um, like Delman and Raul were saying, is from the 1940s, has adapted in different ways, was a life work of Coretta Scott King. But it is it would also be absolutely transformative to rural communities. And it is actually in our federal policy agenda for rural communities, a job guarantee is the central pillar mm. of our of our federal recommendations because rural communities have also gone through decades of disinvestment. And in this moment, there is an unlimited amount of work that could be done if there was a federal job guarantee. There is rural broadband because so many communities do not have access. There's upgrading rural water infrastructure. There's all kinds of climate mitigation that can happen. And people are leaving rural communities because they have been disinvested in and extracted from by massive corporate monopolies. And if we had a jobs guarantee, people in rural communities could build a life in the places they grew up because right now they don't have a choice. So I just want to like really emphasize what Delman and Raul and others have been saying about the job guarantee. It is rooted in a tradition of civil rights. It has been um, the, the greatest advocates of it have been black civil rights leaders, but it is something that would be absolutely transformative to rural communities. And it's something that we very much advocate for. And, you know, I think another thing that maybe, you know, if it isn't sort of crystal clear so far is that, you know, the federal government can, can create a federal job guarantee. They can spend the money that we need to solve the problems that we face. Um, but states and cities are budget constrained. And I think right now, uh, states and cities are states and cities are constrained by the taxes that they can collect. And right now, the federal government is withholding and holding withholding federal funds that they can easily give out right now to keep city employees on payroll, to keep state employees on payroll. And they are allowing a massive, massive 
devastating, um, devastating destruction of state and local governments. And I think the thing that we need to understand is that uh, when it comes to, uh, I think I think of defund the police a lot like taxing the rich, like Raul said, like we need to do this for the sake of doing it. We need to tax the rich for the sake of reducing the power of the rich. We need to defund the police for the sake of shrinking the size, scope, and power of the police. We don't need to do those things to fund the things that we need, right? We don't need to do those things to get a job guarantee. We don't need to do those things to get the infrastructure, right? But in this moment, when the federal government is withholding that necessary relief that they could do right now, in every community, look around. And if you don't defund the police, you're going to be defunding education. You're going to be defunding health and human services. You're going to be defunding roads and infrastructure, right? So if you, um, if you know, like, I think you need to look in your community and look at your school and you know what? Your school might have a police officer in it and you might lose two teachers, right? I think everyone needs to understand that at a fundamental level that right now, because the federal government is artificially withholding funds that it could give right now, and that would not even be an issue if we had a job guarantee at all, we wouldn't even be hanging in the balance like this. But right now, they're holding us hostage, and they are forcing us to defund education, defund infrastructure, defund health and human services. And that's happening everywhere, in every city, in every state, urban and rural. Mm-hmm. Alex, do you want to kind of weigh in on, thank you, Sean, about some of the stuff regarding um, how this is playing out in Chicago? Yeah. And I just, everything that Sean said, I'm like, Sean got it. I don't know that I need to close this question out, but, you know, just to answer the question around like, how did the defund demand impact the budget conversation? Mm -hmm. Um, The timing after the uprisings, I think was, was really um, divine in many ways. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, pretty much after the summer of uprisings, after George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, um, budget season in Chicago was like sort of the next the next thing up for us locally. Um, and it's and so for organizers, it was just like a very easy connection to make, and it actually I think brought more people into the budget process, um, which is really exciting um, because while we didn't um, defund the police this year, we now have so many more people mm-hmm. prepared to make that demand again next year. Um, you know, 87% of people that took the mayor's budget survey said they wanted to defund the police. And at the same time, like, you know, there there's the defund campaign. I also had the opportunity to work with the People's Budget Council, um, which is like a select number of people from different neighborhoods uh, talking to their city council member about their budget priorities. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, while there's a, a group specifically calling to defund the police, the People's Budget Council 
dur during a participatory like budget exercise was defunding the police. And so it was just kind of like in any sort of budget conversation that people were having, they're talking about defunding, um, which is, yeah, it's really exciting. And so I think, um, just this year alone, like really laid the groundwork for an even more successful campaign. Mm -hmm. And, and I hope two successful campaigns in other cities that want to defund. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really great because I think that's part of, you know, um, some of that momentum. And I think this is also, you know, part of why I was interested in this conversation was that we need more and more people to kind of think about, you know, when we always hear people say, do the readings, right? I did the readings. I'm like, the readings also need to include budgets, right? We need more and more of us to be trained in how to kind of research budgets, right? Um, even if, you know, at my school, um, you know, where I work at, like, you know, faculty and staff are being laid off. I mean, you know, and this is going on in a lot of schools, especially small schools, and it's just so increasingly stressful. And there's been a lot of secrecy around the budget, right? And so one of our demands is like, you know, we should be able to see this budget. Why is this being kind of kept from us? And this is happening a lot where people are getting budget cuts and we don't know exactly how this budget is operating. But it also is this issue of if we do get access to the budget, you know, how trained are we to actually read the budget, right? And I remember seeing someone on Twitter who's part of, I don't know their name. Um, they have a Twitter handle, um, but they, um, said something about just some of the organizing work with defund the police. And they said, you know, um, just the work involved in kind of understanding the budget. And they were kind of, you know, proud of themselves and, and, and rightfully so about like, what did it mean for activists to really take on kind of investigating the budget and that these budgets are not meant to be kind of, you know, really transparent, right? There's a lot of hidden stuff. And this is stuff that, you know, Alex, from all that research you did uh, on the Wall Street report, right? Um, is a lot of these institutions purposely keep a lot of the budgets kind of hard to be understood or not transparent, right? And yet they always hide behind kind of budget cuts or necessary budget stuff. So I love the story you're telling also about just the kind of, um, you're, you guys are doing this training and you're mobilizing for kind of this long-term struggle, right? And you're also having more and more people say, what kind of budget do we want, right? Um, this goes to, you know, I think about, you know, with Sean, when you're talking about the type of job that could be created, right? Like right now, the Department of Defense is the largest employer in the world, right? Um, the largest employer in the world. So part of when we think about kind of, you know, um, job creation, we also have to think about like, what is the work that our work is doing, right? So this is why some of the calls to defund the police is saying, you know, what is that work, right? Like that, you know, those are public, what is that work, right? Um, and so if we're thinking about also, you know, a job guarantee, it's also about saying what jobs and what work you know, should be people be doing that could actually benefit everybody. So infrastructure building, right? And stuff that like, you know, um, you know, makes places more safe and stuff, gas explosion and stuff, you know what I mean? Um, versus something like, you know, fin financing, you know, um, policing or military, right? Or enforcement, right? And this is something that, again, you know, I'll say this about um, Dr. King and Credit Scott King, you know, their Divest Invest campaign it was really, you know, it wasn't just about kind of, you know, what are, what is, um, you know, what is the money we have to work with? It was also about what type of society do we want, right? And so 
they were simultaneously saying we need to de-invest from the military and from militarization of war and imperialism. And we also need to kind of invest in jobs, right? And so, you know, the the political vision, right? Of, you know, what do we want to kind of do with this stuff? So um, I think we are getting close to the end. So I want to ask, you know, we had a couple of questions. Um, the questions that we had uh, were basically answered. There was a couple about the federal job guarantee. Can people explain that? I thought you guys did a great job answering that. So I wanted to just go around if anybody has anything that they want to kind of briefly say, um, we have five minutes total for all of us, right? And so if anybody wants to just take a minute and kind of, you know, make a closing kind of statement about something, that would be great. I'm happy to, to take that time around. Okay, go ahead. Um, just offer a, a few notes here. So um, I, I think I want to square us like in an in immediate reality, right? Um, we're in austerity right now. We're in the big one. We're in something worse than the global financial crisis. And fundamentally, the United States economy and society are not built to withstand this sort of withstand this sort of thing, right? Our society is set up so that the jobs and the work and the resources that we need to reproduce society rely on private capital, right? And so we go, we go into debt for education, for meds, for um, you know, transportation, for all kinds of things. And that is fundamentally the way that American society keeps on, um, keeps on rolling, right? And what happens when people aren't working for these big corporations, et cetera, et cetera, is we get total shutdown, especially if the public machinery isn't working, right? And that's awful. And it also leaves space for grifters and people who will take advantage of us and try to hurt us, um, even if the economy gets better, right? And throughout history, we see this done. Um, my friend, Kesu Park, who is an assistant professor at Georgetown, for instance, has written about how the invention of the mortgage as an instrument to dispossess indigenous folks in colonial America. Um, there's a great book called Freedom's First Con by a historian named Shane White that talks about the issuance of private banknotes to um, to freedmen in New York City in ways that were predatory because, again, public money is not occupying a space. Private money comes in. Today, we see all kinds of uh, folks in Silicon Valley, including many people of color, who want to create synthetic or additional monetary systems or link to you in Facebook credits or whatever it might be, as long as they get to watch us and surveil us. And then they have to share that data with the NSA and local cops because that's how law works. And so people will come in and try to hurt us. But it's, this is also a story about reclaiming agency, right? Fundamentally, Mm -hmm. um, macroeconomic policymaking elites in this country do not see folks of color as agents. Things happen to us, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about the Federal Reserve, when it looks at work, back to Tamara's point about the value of work, it's talking about market-based work for firms and sometimes about public employment. It's not talking about domestic work, which it doesn't talk about at all. It doesn't talk about care work to the extent it should. It excludes carceral labor. It excludes agricultural mm -hmm. labor. Mm -hmm. We are not important to them in the central of this story. Mm -hmm. But as we come to understand more of the nature of money, 
that becomes another tool in our toolkit to build a new world instead of one in which we're just preyed upon. So keep reading, please. I'm so happy about this event. I'm so happy that Tamara um, organized this and that you all are here. And I think it's a testament to knowledge and to, um, again, uh, empowering ourselves. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, about, it's about defense, but it's also about nurturing an entirely new world. And as friends of mine like to say, the only way out is through. I just, you know, uh, I had said like we're all go around the room, but I, I think we're going to have to close out. So, but I wanted to say, you know, Raul, that is actually kind of why I organize this is that, you know, we're always told there's not enough money. This is why Delman's statement at his march, when I watched the video clip and he said, you know, we've always been told there's not enough. And, and there's this way where this is constantly hammered at us, right? So part of it is how do we kind of have a better sense of where to direct our demands, right? Money just, you know, it's it's so stressful um, what we're going through. And we often direct that stress at other people who are also going through it, right? You know, being knowing who to be mad at is part of the work, I always say, right? Who to be mad at, right? And part of it is, um, you know, a lot of this stuff is not widely circulated. Public money is not kind of a a broad term. I've been in a lot of racial justice activism and economic justice activism, and I haven't heard of the language of public money um, widely circulating those spaces, even though obviously people care about these issues very much so and are organizing. So for me, it was about kind of, I think this is right on, Raul, what you're saying about, um, you know, what is our agency? What is it that we can, you know, uh, increase our understanding about um, for those who are doing this work? Part of why I wanted you guys on this panel is because you have all been doing this work for a while and I'm trying to just kind of catch up to you, right? And to learn from it. I want to say one last thing to what Raul was saying about, you know, the workers who are not even calculated in kind of these, you know, um, estimations and yet we bear the brunt of this stuff. Um, Raul mentioned uh, incarcerated workers. If you don't know, in in, uh, most prisons, uh, incarcerated people are required to work right? They're required to work and they often do not get labor protections because work is seen as a part of their punishment. Um, and as part of, and so they don't get classified as kind of workers in that way, but they are doing all of this unbearable labor in those extreme situations. And so that brings me to just want to point out that this event was free, but I asked all the participants if they would be willing to, um, if we would be willing to accept donations for Haymarket for their programming and also for the organization Release Aging People in Prison, RAP, and you can find them on Twitter. And I was very moved that all of the participants said, of course, right? So if you have donated money to this event, it has gone to support Release Aging People in Prison. Um, These are people who've been in prison for decades, right? Um, They and also their loved ones are fighting for them to be released. Um, This is especially important during COVID. As Kenyon Farrow mentioned, um, he wrote a piece for um, Colin Kaepernick's Abolition for the People, and he wrote a piece about the public health crisis and abolition um, in terms of um, uh, prisons being sites of kind of public health crisis. Uh, COVID uh, is most doing the most ravaging effects in prisons, jails, and detention centers, right? So I just want to uplift the really important work of release aging people in prison as we close out. And again, I want to thank all of our participants, um, as well as Sean, and as well as um, 
thank you for doing the closed captioning um, uh, um, to uh, Haymarket. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in. And this event will be uh, posted for posterity on YouTube. So thank you, everyone. Have a great night. Um, and again, thank you to the participants. So. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.